So Joel and I both think that sports psychology and the mental side of sport is so important, but we feel like it's probably not covered enough, which is why we want to talk about it a lot on this podcast. So this week, we thought we'd chat to a sports psychologist, Mark Segal, who is based out in America, but he's worked with a whole load of elite football clubs, ranging from Manchester City and Leicester City to Liverpool's Academy. But interestingly, he was also enlisted by Sven Eriksson to work with the England team at the 2006 World Cup and help them with their mindset when taking penalties. So he's done a lot of interesting things in the field of sports psychology. Through his consultancy, Winning Mind, which is based out in California, he regularly consults with Olympic and professional athletes from all over the world. So he'll be able to give a really good insight into the future of sports psychology and the development of athletes. But probably of most interest to our listeners will be his work in football. So as well as helping us understand the psychology and what will be going through the minds of players when they're playing these games behind closed doors. He'll also use his time working with Sven Goran Eriksson to help us understand why that golden generation of England players didn't live up to their hype and why England have had such a penalty problem in the past. Right, perfect. So thanks for coming on, Mark. As you know, Cam and I are both trying to forward the sort of discussion about the mental side of sport, whether that's impact on mental health of players or whether that's enhancing the performance of elite athletes using psychology. I thought we'd just start with stuff that's going on at the moment. So there's obviously a massive impact on elite sport through coronavirus. So most matches being played behind closed doors at the moment. I was just wondering what you think the impact on sportsman psychology will be playing in front of no crowds when they're so used to playing in front of, you know, 30,000, 40,000 people every week. I mean, you know, it's interesting because I've spoken to a couple of players about, you know, how it's impacted them. And, you know, a lot of them are just feeling like it's, it's kind of like preseason, a little bit hard to get that extra bit of motivation. But generally, I think, you know, the, they're going to adapt. You know, players are, you know, at the highest level are professionals. They're very competitive. And so while I think we may be missing that little extra bit, I don't think we're going to notice a huge difference in how the players are performing. But I think the home field advantage is going to go away. I think that's one of the impacts of coronavirus. And have you guys looked into any of the, the numbers around that? Yeah, it seems that there's a lot more away wins than there would have been pre-pandemic, which is just it's fascinating the impact that a home crowd can have on you. Super interesting, right? So when you're playing away from home, I mean, a derby match now is much different. You know, you've got players, I think, who are much less intimidated coming into those environments. You know, in some ways, I think there'll be a positive impact. But I think, you know, as it relates to the, the fans' enjoyment of the game, we're all trying to get used to what it's like. And, you know, they're experimenting with fake crowd noise and all that kind of stuff. But I, I, the challenge is going to be, as I think you guys are keenly aware of, is how do you get that little bit extra out of the players that the crowd, kind of the energy that the crowd gives, you know, how can you replicate in any way that? And I think it's probably just going to be difficult. Yeah. Well, even little things like not only is there not a crowd, which obviously boosts your intensity levels, but even little things like players now can't be in a tunnel next to their opposition players. And normally right. before a game, if you're in the tunnel next to the opposition players, that is going to create an environment which is quite intense and get you ready for the game. Now they have to go out of the tunnel individually, which could reduce intensity levels a little bit. So I was wondering maybe if you were working with a team in this new post-pandemic future of football, how would you try and build their intensity levels? Yeah, that's a good question. Listen, I'm a big believer in identity, in how the belief system of players and organizations impact motivation. And we're getting more and more access to the dressing room now. So you see 
certain managers who have been have become really good at that, right? Guardiola, if you watch the um, you know the Manchester documentaries, he is very good about saying we're going to play like us. We need to play like us. Well, what is what the hell does us mean? And the clearer and more coherent and compelling that is, I think the better it is for motivation for the players. I think Klopp has been a master at it, right? Liverpool, you're playing for the badge. Well, what does it mean to play for it? What are the things that come along with that? It can be very inspirational, I think, for players if you're good at tapping into those things. In terms of the identity of players, do you think having this break with coronavirus will make them sort of essentially take a step back and realise that their identity is purely not just as a football player? You know, there are more things to life than football and may that help them in a way relax when they actually get back to playing a bit? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a super interesting point. I think generally, yes. I think it can play different ways for, for different athletes. I think we have athletes who have really taken advantage of the time off and it is almost solidified their um, commitment to being great athletes. When you see that, the athletes that have come back really fit or strong, they've worked on something. And so in, in those instances, I think it's a recommitment to their craft because they realize how much they miss it and they, they have had time to focus on other aspects of their life. So it's done that for them. I think for other athletes, it's a reminder that there's a whole life outside of football that's beautiful. And so I think it will give them some perspective when they return. I'm, I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all kind of a situation, but I think it's been a very interesting social experiment to see which players and which teams have managed to squeeze something really meaningful out of the time off and who have been more kind of relaxed and have probably missed an opportunity. Yeah, 100%. I'd agree with that. And it does seem like a lot of players quite anxious when they play and that that could reduce their performance. And this whole pandemic will be able to give them a bit of perspective about yeah what's really important in life. And maybe they won't think that football is the be-all or end-all and it might allow them to sort of relax a bit more, as Joel was saying. So no, it's, it's really interesting as a sort of social experiment about the impact of all these pressures on, on a sports person. But if we maybe move on to your career in this field, one thing that you've done really interesting is working with Liverpool's academy. And I was wondering, how young were the players you were working with? And at what age do you sort of think that children should start using people like yourself and, and working on their psychology? The players at the academy at Liverpool were between 15 and 18. It was the group that was predominantly participating in the FA Youth, Youth Cup at the time. And, you know, the work there was pretty straightforward. You know, the focus of the work was to meet individually with the players, to identify a development objective. And we used some psychological assessment to help speed up the process of identifying what was going to be most useful with each of the players. And then it wasn't really rocket science. It was how are we going to advance the cause on what we had identified as the thing to work on? I sometimes refer to it as the one thing because players don't change that much. And it's hard to get movement, psychological movement for people. And I think you've really got to keep things very simple. Um, and, you know, to the question of how early should you start, I think it depends on what starting means. I think that young athletes should be exposed to important sports psychological principles at a pretty young age. Uh, I think it's advantageous for parents and, and coaches to teach kids what winning is, what it means to prepare, 
what good sportsmanship is, what it means to really try to give something of yourself. Those are lessons that should start early and should continue throughout a player's life. When you're talking about more formal introduction of sports psychology, now I think you probably have to wait until the players, I mean, it depends on maturity, but I would say 12 years old is a rough starting point where you can introduce certain important topics. We did an interesting bit of work around identity with youth players here in the States. And we started to introduce them to the kind of these big concepts of things like, what does winning mean for you? Why do you play soccer? What are the important things in your life? What are you great at? What are your superpowers? What's your kryptonite? I mean, those are all really profound questions, but you can start to ask them at a young age. And I think it's really important for kids to start to think about those things early. I think what's really interesting with young athletes, and Joel and I have talked about it a lot, is quite a lot of players we've played against at a young age who weren't necessarily the most talented at that age have gone on to make it professionally. And then sometimes the more talented ones uh, at a young age haven't. So would you say that it, it's something that you can identify as that potential to make it professionally is those mental attributes as opposed to their physical attributes at that young age? I believe yes, but that is the holy grail. That's the million dollar question is, you know, can we identify at an early age the qualities, psychological or otherwise, that are going to allow an athlete to be successful? I mean, everybody's on the hunt for what that is, me included. You know, we're doing some work now on what we call psychological scouting. So to try to add psychological analytics into the mix, because increasingly the other data is becoming commoditized. You know, all the clubs have access to very similar pieces of data. And, you know, they've, they've got people in the background now working and crunching the numbers and using artificial intelligence to figure out what the patterns are. But I do believe that the, the psychology of players, we will increasingly learn that that is an important, if not defining characteristic of who makes it and who doesn't. But it's a complicated equation because you've got a lot of other factors that are in the mix. So obviously you're involved in the screening and recruitment of players into academies. And I'm sure there are a lot of psychological traits and qualities like their energy levels and their enthusiasm which come across quite favorably at the same time there are obviously a lot of changes that a 13 to 17 year old will go through and with the mental health crisis in young people at the moment there's going to be depression anxiety which will negatively impact their motivation and their enthusiasm and their energy levels so how much of allowance do you make for this crisis when assessing how a player comes across I think the more opportunities that players have to talk about how they're feeling about things and not to be overly soft about it, but I mean, you know, as well as I do, it's a very macho environment and maybe it's changing a little bit, but, you know, traditionally it's been a bit taboo to talk about feelings. And in particular, if those feelings are feelings of anxiety or a, a kind of depression, there's not tons of room for it. So I think that the role of sports psychology, at least partially, can be to provide an opportunity for athletes to talk about the kinds of things that they might not ordinarily talk about. Yeah, it is an interesting one. As you've said, the game is becoming increasingly reliant on analytics and on data to be able to prove things. So for that reason, it may seem that the more 
empathetic and more emotional side um, of sports psychology might be fading away. But I think there's always got to be that emotional space to be able to have a certain discussion and emotional influence in being able to spot certain things in someone's characteristics. Yeah, you know, I do a lot of work, not just in sport, but in the corporate world. And what I have increasingly realized is that your personal brand, your reputation is really important in your success. And a lot of times we don't want to pay a lot of attention to that because we want to believe that life is a meritocracy. If I'm a great player, everything's going to work out for me because that will carry the day. But the reality is that there are all kinds of decisions that are being made that are really about a perception of somebody, how I feel about somebody. And if players or executives ignore their brand, how people are thinking about them, they're missing a massive and super important part of their success journey. And so that's not real data. At least it's not real data the way that we like to think about it. And so how's the manager thinking about me? What does the manager think about me? What does the sporting director think about me? That's going to influence all kinds of things. That's really fuzzy shit, but it's super important. So I'm very interested in that space. Yeah. And in this world, which is so focused on data and analytics, in the absence of data, how do you sort of prove to people that it's working and that your work is actually having an impact? I mean, you, you said that it is a bit of a taboo subject. So have you been met by a bit of skepticism in, in this way? Yes, for sure. Early on, especially more skepticism. It's increasingly becoming more accepted, if not really embraced. It depends on the environment. But for sure, early on, there was that. How we demonstrate value or prove ourselves is complicated. It's difficult because it's, it's a bad experiment in a way. There are so many factors that wind up impacting whether a player improves or makes it or whether a club or a team does well. We're, we're just one factor amongst many, which I think in some ways has shielded a lot of the bad practitioners because it has allowed room for people to think, oh, well, that person's great, simply because there was a correlation between the work that they did and some success, which they may not have had anything to do with, quite frankly. But in the same way, I think you can be a really good practitioner, just like you can be, I think, a quite good manager and be unlucky in situations. And so the reality is people, the world makes judgments based on the, the, the correlation. If you've got a number of success stories, if you've got people that will say, so-and-so is great, they made a big difference, then that helps in one's career. You know, I try to be a bit more rigorous, but the reality is you've got to have success stories. You've got to have people that have actually experienced the work who say, this was meaningful to me. It made a difference. And that is absolutely the most powerful way for us to demonstrate value, but it's soft. You know, I'll acknowledge that. So we've really got to create more rigor to what our influence is and how we demonstrate value. And in terms of the skepticism, does it help that you played a high level of football yourself? I played a mediocre level of football. It depends on who you're speaking with. Like here in America, I talk about my career and people are very impressed. Um, and I've got a, a good coaching license here in the States. So I've got good credibility, but I'm basically treated like a semi-pro. In Europe, I have to be very careful because it doesn't sound all that impressive to be knocking around in some of the lower divisions. I think the more important thing or as important is 
to demonstrate real competence and understanding of the sport because you just get credibility. I mean, it's just very difficult. You know, if I come in and I was working with you guys in cricket when you were you were younger, it's quite possible if I didn't get really smart on the sport that I just, my terminology would be off, my understanding of the sport would be off, and that might impact how you might have felt about me and the work that I did. In reality, it might not have truly impacted, but if you don't think that I know what I'm doing, it's going to make a difference. So I think having come from the football world, soccer world, I do think it makes a difference. One of the things that you did early on in your career as well is, I think you worked with Sven Goran Eriksson. He originally asked you for a bit of advice with England taking penalties um, because England are notoriously bad at taking penalties and other countries like Germany are really good and seem to always beat England. What would you have done to help Sven or anyone to improve their ability at taking penalties in a big tournament like the World Cup? So there's a big story that sits behind that question. I haven't talked that much about it, so you guys are getting a little bit of a, a scoop. But as time has wore on, I, I feel like it's more of a story that I can tell. So back in 2004, 2005, I had been introduced to Sven through a mutual friend. His son, Johan, was an aspiring sports psychologist. He's now a very successful sports agent. But I had met Sven and you know we'd gotten along fairly well. And as we got to know each other, he had started to express interest in bringing me into the England setup in some way, shape or form, which obviously would have been a really exciting thing to do. I mean, I followed England and the league. And so in the run up to 2006, we were in contact with each other. And you know, I would offer up various pieces of advice because I was trying my best to stay connected to things from afar here in, in California. And I don't know to what degree my input ever influenced the kinds of decisions or things that he was doing. You'd be very interested to see some of the letters that I wrote about. I mean, if you remember at the time, you know, the captainship was challenging. The setup in midfield was, was also an issue. So there were all kinds of, there was, it was a pretty meaty time. And as 2006 wore on, he said, all right, I'd like to bring you into the setup. Uh, it's a little bit complicated. And what I realized is that there were managers, some influential managers who shall go nameless, but you can figure out who they were, were not all that excited about bringing some bloke from the States into the setup to fuck with the players' minds. And so it was complicated for Sven. I was asked by him to, you know, whether I could make it over to Germany. As it turns out, I was already going because my family, we had planned a trip with a, a close friend of mine. So I said, okay, perfect. When you're there, I'll be in touch. We'll bring you in. Uh, to the setup, and we'll go from there. Okay, great. I went over there, watched the matches, had a, had a fantastic time, but uh, it was increasingly clear that either it wasn't going to happen or it was going to happen very late or what have you. And we met at the Sweden match, and I started to give up on it. I didn't really understand what was happening behind the scenes. And then as it turns out, my family went back. I stayed with my friend, stayed for another week, still nothing. I gave up on it. I was dropped off at the Frankfurt airport going through security. Literally, my bag is going through the x-ray belt and my phone rings. I pick it up on the other side of the x-ray belt, or I think I called the number back, and it was Johan, Sven's son. And he said, you know, hey, Mark, where are you? I said, well, I'm about ready to get on a plane to go back home. And he said, you know, we need you. Can you come to Baden-Baden? And I was like, come on, man. You know, I was a little bit upset that it 
had dragged on like this. He was very convincing. Uh, and I managed at a, you know, at a time where it was not easy to get your bags back off of a plane and explain why you were, you know, not going to take your flight to the States. Got all my shit, got picked up by my friend, my German buddy, drove four hours or whatever it is to, to Baden-Baden. And so it began my brief but fascinating spell with Sven and the England setup. Uh, I got there. We, uh, I met with Sven almost immediately in, there was like a garden bar and I'll never forget the moment. We each I think had a beer in front of us. And I said, so how can I help? And he said, penalties. I said, okay. He goes, I, I need your help with penalties. Now this is keep in mind 36, 48 hours, now maybe two days before the Portugal match. They had one training left before they went off to Gelsenkirchen and I'm being asked to help with penalty kicks. And listen, there's a part of me that was like, oh, fantastic. I mean, I, you know, I can be a hero. I can take some pixie dust out of my pocket, come in, they'll, you know, they'll be great at penalties and I will be a national hero and one of the great sports psychologists of all time. I said, listen, the last thing you want, and this is after a conversation, the last thing you want is at this point to bring me in to the fold, to try to do something. I go, there's just not enough time. I would not be fair if I said I was going to be able to make a difference in this period of time. I just can't. So, you know, we spent quite a bit of time kind of navigating and negotiating how I could be helpful. And what we landed on was that uh, I would kind of work behind the scenes, that I did help them design a penalty kick training session in the training that I did go. I came, got paraded in through all the security, watched a press conference, and, and was there for training. And as it turned out, the, the execution of the penalty kick training wasn't great. I wouldn't blame Sven for it. He wasn't the only one, maybe, you know, that was in charge of things. But afterward, we spent a good deal of time debriefing. We talked about a bunch of things. I gave him some advice. I, I gave him some advice on who should take the kicks. I'm not going to tell you the advice that I gave him as much as you might want to know. And the rest was even more surreal because the team took off. I went and watched the match against Portugal and Gelsenkirchen. I drove there with his, with his family and I watched debacle unfold of them losing in, in penalty kicks there and missed out because part of what Sven and I had agreed on was, Hey, let's just get through this. That gives us a four day or, or what have you break that then there's time maybe to introduce me in I can meet with some of the players and I can see what I can do. And so, yeah, that went up in smoke. Very, very disappointing that I wasn't able to be more helpful in that situation. But that's the story of me and England and penalty kicks. It seems crazy that a national team at a World Cup would only bring someone in the day before. I mean, that's just not really preparation at all. No. But when you were... Uh, giving Sven advice about who should take penalties. What sort of things were you looking for in the players? And what sort of things told you that they might be the ones who'd be successful at taking penalties? Yeah, that's a, such a good question, man. That, for me, gives me so much optimism about how you guys are going to do. Because that is a brilliant question, really. I'm glad to hear it. I mean, I did my best to just, um, you know, with the limited information I had, I mean, certainly I knew the players. So, you know, I, I folded that into my, my guidance. But I also just watched how they performed and how they treated things in training, which for me informed 
their mindset at the time. I mean, you know, players come in and out of form. And I think you can tell what their confidence level is like. Not always, but I mean, to, to a certain degree in the run-up to something. And I just did my best to see if I could pick up on those kinds of things. I folded that into the knowledge that I had about the players. And that was the guidance that I gave. If I had had more of an opportunity and I had a limited opportunity to, to make a difference, I would go back to the story or the narrative, the belief system that the players had about their ability to take penalty kicks. It was a national cultural phenomenon. The, the stigma around pe- England and penalty kicks took on a life of its own. And it's an interesting contrast. Like you talk about Germany, it's almost like divergent. Germany, you know, and penalty kicks were, you know, the can't miss guys and England were, were, were the opposite. And I think that that story started to infiltrate the mindset of the players. It certainly wasn't a technical thing, you wouldn't imagine. And so that's where I would start is trying to recast the narrative around that. I think there's some small things that, that could have and have now, I think, been done to help the players. It starts with really good preparation. I think that that was missing early on. It just kind of folds into the story that the players are telling themselves about whether they're, they're good at it or they're not good at it. Um, so I would have kind of worked both ends against the middle, a lot more detail on the, the technical aspects, um, the planning, the thought process behind the taking of a kick. I would have tried to disrupt the thinking that you, you hear it all the time. There is no, um, there's no way to prepare for a penalty. It's just, you know, you can't do it. So players just have to do it. I don't really buy that. I read in the athletic article that you were saying that the way that they were training was, for example, they'd just run up and take the penalty. There was no prior whistle or there was nothing that replicated the in-game scenario, really. And I think that's something that's so common. Like, as I said in the email to you, we have practiced so many cricket shots, but we've never practiced the walk to the middle, which is probably the most nerve-wracking bit. So is that something that's been practiced in sport more recently, like trying to take something like penalties, for example, and really replicating that in-game scenario? Because it sounds like it wasn't done that much 15 years ago, for example. Yeah, it was surprising to me. There wasn't a lot of attention to detail back then. It's definitely improved. Obviously, it still varies from manager to manager and club to club. But there's been a lot of good work, like evidence-based work. Particularly, there's a a Norwegian sports psychologist, Jair Jordet, who's become the penalty kick guy. And for anybody who's interested, you know, I would just have, you know, I would look at a lot of the research that he's done. Everything from the amount of time that players take in the run-up. I mean, there's some research to show that, you know, you're better off not going too fast and not going too slow. So there's a cadence to the run-up. There are strategies now. Keepers have gotten so good that oftentimes... You, you, know, you really need to have a strategy. And there's probably a couple that will work, but to come to the spot without one is not a good thing. You either want to decide based on keeper movement, keep your head up, make a decision after the keeper has made a decision, or you want to make sure that you've picked a spot and you can hit that spot perfectly. But you know the little things about trying to replicate some sense of pressure, you're never going to get it exactly right, is important. But the little things, as you mentioned, like the walk-up, I mean, that's really the stressful part of the kick for players. That can have the most impact on your mindset when you get there. And yet we blow past that because we think, oh, well, that's not the important bit. The important bit is, you know, you with the ball. So I think there are other things like that that deserve attention and are getting some. 
Yeah, I mean, if you're a professional footballer, you should realistically be able to score a penalty from 12 yards. But it's not about that. It's about whether you can deal with the pressure. And I think that dealing with the pressure is really crucial to being a successful sports person, isn't it? Because, I mean, no matter how good you are on the training pitch, you're not going to be successful unless you can do it in front of thousands and thousands of fans when the pressure's on on the big stage. Yeah, no, agreed. Sticking with the England team, that Sven's England team that you um, worked with briefly was probably one of the greatest England English teams of all time. And they've been labelled the golden generation, but they never really achieved as much as their potential. Do you reckon that's maybe because the pressure on the international stage and also the pressure given to them by the media was maybe a bit too much to handle? Yeah, I think that was a factor. You know, if you listen to what some of the players have said about that time period, I do think you have to acknowledge that there was a massive amount of pressure uh, on the players. I I think it was Gerard who may may have talked a bit about that. I do think the players felt it, so I don't want to discount that. But I would also say at the same time that these are players that are used to dealing with massive amounts of pressure. And I don't think that that's the full story, that it was just that. I think there were a number of different factors that led to that group maybe underperforming. I think historically, I think people think that they underperform more more than they did, potentially, but I, I would agree generally with the sentiment. Just going back to the start when you said about how Guardiola um, and Kloppi both think that they are really good at breeding an identity within their within their teams. Who are some of the other better managers that you've seen at being able to do that? The one that comes to mind for me is Jesse Marsh, who's at Salzburg now, Red Bull. I've spent a decent amount of time with Jesse in New York, with the New York Red Bulls, which is where he was before. And I think Red Bull in general, in fairness, if you think about it, has done a really good job on creating an identity that that is that drives all the way through their, you know, the, the bigger brand around energy and youth. It's pretty interesting what they've done. And um, I certainly would point to Jesse as a manager who can both motivate and plan. Those two things, that combination of that is really powerful. He's one I would watch. I think another manager who historically was quite good at motivating players is Sir Alex Ferguson. But obviously, he's known as well for the hairdryer treatment and basically giving players... but berating them pretty intensely. To be a player of his, you, you've got to be pretty hard-skinned. But some other players probably respond better to a sort of arm-round-the-shoulder approach. So why do some players need that arm-round-the-shoulder and why do some players need more of a kick like Sir Alex Ferguson would have given them? Well, I mean, it goes to player makeup, doesn't it? You've got players that I think are naturally more resilient to things. And, and maybe that's a byproduct of the circumstances they had growing up, that they just have experienced a lot of difficult situations and they've learned how to bounce back. Sometimes it's about natural confidence or, or ego. And I think, you know, you've also got players who have become successful through a kind of self-criticism, if you will. I mean, there are different engines that drive players. You've got the engine of ego, confidence, and competitiveness, But you also can have an engine in a weird way of a bit of insecurity. I want to be great. I need this in my life, which can also be super powerful. 
And so I think that helps explain a little bit of it's overly simplistic, but I do think you've got players that can cope who are used to it, who have that kind of resilience. And you think you have other players that maybe are a bit more vulnerable to critique. And so they're going to respond more positively to kind of reinforcement and the arm around the, the shoulder, if you will. I've heard you say that facing up to your biggest fears and overcoming anxiety surrounding that can ultimately help you to be a better sportsman. And I'm just wondering for the young athletes coming through, who a lot for a lot of them, their biggest fear will be social media and the fact that they can get so openly criticised um, and the fact that any of their failures are out there for everyone to see on a daily basis. So how would you advise young players to face up to their biggest fear of social media and the fact that they can be criticised so, so regularly? Yeah, and I think you're definitely right. The world has changed. So if you're vulnerable to criticism, you have so much more access to it now if you want through social media. I mean, you, I think before it was a little easier to be insulated if you wanted to be. Uh, now it's become more challenging. So I think the players are more vulnerable to that. And I, so I think you're right. I mean, leaning into, well, what's the real worry there? You know, what are you afraid of? You know, are you going to be rejected? I mean, what's hanging underneath this? Is it a need to be liked? Is it maybe not enough of a belief that you are really good at what you do, kind of in that vein, I think it's important for players to think what success is for them. What is really important to them? I'm never going to be able to take away the sting of criticism or a bad performance or injuries or other kinds of failure. But I think that you can, in some ways, inoculate players, you can reinforce their ability to deal with those kinds of things in just the way that you're suggesting, which is talking to them about, well, wait a second, what are you really about? What does it mean to win and be great? And I think the more that you can steer and remind players that it is about effort and intensity and preparation and the things that they have control over, that's what makes somebody great. And if you can steer them back in that direction, at least you can create some balance in how they start to think about things and how they react to some of the slings and arrows that get shot at them. We chatted to a player who'd come through at uh, Tottenham's academy and he's now gone on to do very well at Ipswich. And it's that sort of, yeah, for him, I think it was if he'd have defined success as coming through the Spurs academy and getting a contract, if he's defined success as that, and then he got released, as he did, he may have fallen through the net and not been able to keep going. But I think he obviously defined success as being on that journey and like the way he defined it in his mind, he was able to then bounce back and now he's had a successful career. But other players will define it purely as, I need to get the Spurs contract at 18. If I don't get that, I'm a failure. And I think that's why people then fall through the net. 100% right. If there's one, either a piece of advice or strategy or approach that I take that I think is the most helpful is to help athletes really rethink what success is for them. That is absolutely the biggest and most profound starting point for them. You've got to take control back over what that is. Um, there's all winning and those other kinds of metrics are always going to be there. I don't even want to take them away. I just want to reposition them so that the most important thing are the things that 
they have more control over, that they can really feel good about themselves. And I want that to carry the day to the other things, not the reverse. And I, I think most people that I've worked with have felt like that maybe is the one thing that allowed them to push through some of the areas that they've struggled with. One other thing that might be useful, you know, because you were pushing on this kind of going into the most difficult areas, the fears or whatever, I've really found that to be profoundly useful. Not that looking at the strengths and really leveraging strengths isn't, because it absolutely is, but there is this philosophy, and I think it was born out of stoicism, not to get all heavy on you, but the idea of spending time with the things that are most uncomfortable and letting that lead you to a way of interacting that releases you from that big fear or worry, it's really pretty impactful. I mean, it's a little bit like, you know, it's putting your head in the lion's mouth. What are you concerned about? Oh, I, you know, I hate public speaking. It's the one thing, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm great in one-on-one situations, but man, I just freeze up in, in public situations. You know, what should I do? Well, the uncomfortable advice is what? Public speaking. You got to do it. You got to figure out a way to do it. Now, if your definition of success in public speaking is everyone's going to think I'm great, I'm going to wow the audience. I'm not going to trip over some words. I'm not going to feel anxious. You're fucked. If your definition changes to, I'm somebody that does the things that are important to make a difference, even if they're uncomfortable to me, then that definition can drive you into uncomfortable situations. And I think it's really important. One, one of the examples I give is, you know, you're, you're going for a jog or a, a, a walk in a neighborhood and you turn the corner and you see a, a house on fire. What do most people do? What do they think to do? And the answer is, well, you call, in America, you call the fire department, you call 911 or, you know, you call emergency services. In the same situation, you know, you turn the corner, but it's your house that's on fire. What do you do? And there's a loved one inside. You fucking go into the house, or at least you consider going into the house. You consider risking yourself because your identity, your belief system is, I am somebody who would risk myself to do something important to save somebody that I love. And the fire didn't get any less hot. There's not any less danger, but you're willing to do it now because your belief system has pushed you into that. That's something that can really be helpful to athletes who are trying to overcome some bit of discomfort. So that's one of the things, obviously, that I'm, I'm quite interested in. That's absolutely fascinating. And I think any young athlete who might end up listening to this will find that as really, really useful advice. So it's definitely something Joel and I could have done with when we were coming through the academies back in the day. You read a lot about how professional sports people have sort of superstitions to get them in the right sort of zone, I guess. Is having a superstition something that you would advise as a sports psychology consultant? I'm a believer in superstition, but I don't go out of my way to create them. I think when they come about naturally and they are not disruptive, in other words, if you've not created a situation where it's very difficult to replicate the superstition, in other words, to actually make it happen, then I'm, I'm fine with it. You know, you put your, you know, your right boot on before your left boot, then that's okay because you're in charge of that. But if your superstition is something you don't have control over, like, you know, I, I've got to eat uh, chicken, you know, barbecue chicken wings before I have to have three barbecue chicken wings before my match and, you know, you're not in control of the catering, then that's probably not an advantageous superstition. So I think generally speaking, they're fine. They're part of sport. I think there's kind of something romantic and cool about it. So I have no problem. I, I had my own. 
my kids have theirs. So I think that they're fine as long as they're not, not disruptive. Yeah, I think there's definitely a fine line, isn't there? Like a lot of people speak of their routine and that seems to be one thing. But then, yeah, when it's sort of crippling a player's performance or making them incredibly anxious if, yeah, they haven't had barbecue chicken wings, then it's obviously quite... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did you guys have any when you were when you were playing? I always put my left cricket pad on first. So just a small one. There's quite a famous player called Jonathan Trott who played for England. I'm pretty sure he... Every time he went out to bat, he had to ensure that all the toilet seats in all the bathrooms were facing up, <laughs> which is just crazy. Like how you'd think that might impact your performance, but yeah, yeah, that's great. it's fascinating. I'll recommend that to a couple of players. We'll see if we can <laughs> turn that into a trend. That'll be great. <laughs> so listen, I'm conscious of your time too. I'm curious because I'm used to the one asking the questions and not having to answer them all, but I'm just curious. In terms of your own identity, like what you guys are trying to create here, what's the thing? I listen to your podcast. And by the way, it's like, is there a dream at the end of this for you guys? Yeah, I, I guess ultimately we want to be doing it in a studio. We want to uh, not have to do it over Zoom. So we, we have got quite high aspirations for it. But yeah, we're sort of, we're in the early stages. So we are finding our feet. But I mean, where we were with the the first episode compared to where we are now, we've definitely found the direction we want to go in. We found the niche, which is essentially the mindset of sports people and the mental side of sport, um, which is something we're both passionate and fascinated by. Um, so that's our niche and that's the direction we're heading in, we think. I think that's great. I mean, that, that you answered my other question, which is the clearer you can be on the story, I use that loosely, that you want to be telling, to your audience and what you want the audience to get out of it. What do you want a listener to feel? Why are they tuning in? Why do they have a special affinity for you all? I mean, that's what will make this sing for you all. And I think you've got a really good start to things. But again, I'd be remiss if I didn't like, you know, push you to continue to, I mean, that was a very good answer in fairness. The psychology of sport we feel a topic that's not covered as much as other areas of sports. We're not necessarily interested in what happens on the pitch. It's more what happens off the pitch and, and the sort of behind the scenes side of sport, which is so important. Yeah, obviously I'm super interested in all that. Yeah, that's what I got. I wish you guys tons of luck. Okay, brilliant. Pleasure, Mark. All right. Well, thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks for your time. No, thank you guys. Talk soon. Really appreciate that. Cheers, Mark. Bye.